Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. Today I'm joined by Dr. Henry Park, who is the Chief of Thoracic Radiotherapy at Yale School of Medicine Smilo Cancer Network. Last year, Dr. Park served as faculty for I3Health's CME and CPD CPE approved activity on optimizing treatment selection, sequencing, and tolerability in small cell lung cancer. Today, he's here to share some updates that have occurred in the field since then, including data presented just this month at the American Society for Therapeutic Radiology and Oncology ASTRO annual meeting. Dr. Park, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks very much for having me. So would you like to introduce yourself and share what your work and your research focus on? Sure. So my name is Henry Park. I'm an associate professor, the vice chair for clinical research, and also chief of thoracic radiation therapy at Yale. My research focuses on comparative effectiveness research and clinical trials, really to study the value of radiation therapy and the nuances of treatment planning in improving outcomes for patients with lung cancer. So I'm excited to hear about the updates that were presented at the ASTRO annual meeting recently. Uh, To start off, what were some of the notable abstracts in SCLC that were presented? Yes, this year was a very exciting year for advancing small cell lung cancer treatment at ASTRO. There were two plenary talks, a clinical trial session, and also two oral presentations tackling the issue of, of using radiation dose escalation for limited stage disease, also hippocampal avoidance techniques for prophylactic cranial irradiation when patients don't have brain metastases yet, stereotactic radiosurgery for those who do have brain metastases, and also consolidative thoracic radiation for extensive stage disease. So for limited stage small cell lung cancer, a phase three trial from China was presented by Dr. Yu and studied the value of escalating dose of twice daily radiation to the involved primary tumor and lymph nodes. Either way, patients received three weeks of twice daily radiation. Overall survival and progression-free survival were both improved in patients receiving the higher dose treatment without an increase in side effects. The primary critiques were that the overall survival differences were much more impressive than progression-free survival, mirroring the earlier study from Norway from Gronberg et al., and that patients had to be 70 years or younger, and that 40% of patients were non-smokers. And this was not representative of the small cell lung cancer patient in the U.S., that being said, 54 gray in th- in, uh, uh, using 30, 54 gray in 30 fractions twice daily uh, did seem to have a benefit over 45 gray in 30 fractions twice a day. So for prophylactic cranial irradiation for small cell lung cancer, an NRG phase three trial called NRG CC003 was presented by Dr. Gandhi. And this compared hippocampal avoidance techniques versus standard techniques of PCI. There was no statistically significant difference in the primary neurocognitive endpoint called the Hopkins verbal learning test. But there did appear to be a benefit in a secondary endpoint of neurocognitive function overall. Momentine paradoxically trended towards increased neurocognitive failure, which is, a, which is an interesting finding that was somewhat surprising. For those with brain metastases from small cell lung cancer, a German phase two study called Encephalon was presented by Dr. Bernhardt comparing stereotactic radiosurgery versus standard whole brain radiotherapy. While not all patients had neurocognitive function values recorded, the authors concluded that there was a greater risk of significant decline in neurocognitive function three months after baseline for patients receiving whole brain radiation compared to SRS. 
What's unclear is whether or not this difference persists and whether or not the outcomes will be different when comparing to hippocampal avoidance whole brain radiation rather than standard whole brain radiation. Then there were two additional Chinese oral presentations focused on retrospective analyses of patients receiving versus not receiving consolidated thoracic radiation, along with maintenance immunotherapy, following upfront chemoimmunotherapy in extensive stage small cell lung cancer. The first one was presented by Dr. Lee, and they observed higher survival for those undergoing consolidated thoracic radiation. While the second one, presented by Dr. B, noted that dose escalating radiation therapy from 30 gray in 10 fractions up to 45 gray in 15 fractions did not appear to have a beneficial effect. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing all these results. It's uh, That was a really comprehensive overview and exciting to hear about all the new updates. So how do you think that these new results will begin to affect SCLC practice? So in my practice, I think limited stage patients will continue to have the option of twice daily radiation over three weeks in 30 fractions uh, versus once daily radiation over six to seven weeks in 30 to 35 fractions. Either way, I plan to push the dose a bit higher to the primary and nodal tumors themselves than I may have done in the past based on results of this ASTRA presentation of, the, of this uh, phase three trial from China, in addition to similar findings from the Norway phase two trial, while still respecting the normal organ constraints as much as I've done before. We know from the CONVERT study, as well as the RTOG0538 study, that uh, using 66 to 70 gray, um, is, while not superior to 45 gray, it, you know, doing that twice daily, um, you know, may still be, uh, you know, fairly similar in terms of outcomes. And now we're seeing that for 54 gray in 30 twice daily fractions, uh, maybe better than 45 gray in twice daily fractions. Uh, so I think either way, I would inch more towards uh, the higher end of those ranges as much as possible. In the near future, we're also looking forward to results of the Adriatic and the LU005 studies in defining the role of concurrent or consolidated radiation for limited stage disease. Now, if immunotherapy becomes a standard of care after these trials show their results, then we should consider acting right away in conducting clinical trials that are based on improved combinations of systemic therapies that are being added to the backbone of chemoradiation. Now, for other questions regarding PCI, consolidated radiation, and brain metastasis stereotactic radiosurgery, I'll continue to encourage patients to enroll on our three active small cell lung cancer cooperative group clinical trials. So the first one for PCI is the Maverick S1827 trial. And this randomizes both limited stage and extensive stage patients without brain metastases between getting PCI versus no PCI uh, but either way, getting uh, having regular MRI surveillance. For patients on this study, I will feel better about offering hippocampal avoidance techniques based on these NRG CC003 results that were presented at Astro. Hippocampal avoidance was allowed, but not required on this Maverick trial. And I think in the era of routine MRI surveillance, immunotherapy, and hippocampal avoidance techniques, it's really critical to have updated prospective data on this question regarding the impact of PCI on both survival and neurocognitive outcomes. The Raptor NRG LU007 study, looking at consolidated radiation for extensive stage patients, randomizes those who get chemo and immunotherapy and maintenance immunotherapy between getting radiation to up to five sites versus not getting radiation afterwards. 
It's also important to have perspective data on the value of consolidated radiation to see if the recent retrospective evidence presented at this year's ASTRO, as well as prior prospective evidence from the CREST trial that favor consolidated radiation, still applies in this current era of immunotherapy. I do not plan to dose escalate beyond 30 gray in 10 fractions, except in very unusual circumstances based on this ASTRO study. Of note, these extensive stage patients without brain metastases can actually co-enroll on both the Maverick and the Raptor studies. So if they have uh, no brain metastases and they have extensive stage disease, they can be randomized to PCI or no PCI and also consolidated radiation versus no consolidated radiation. And finally, the NRG CC009 study is randomizing patients with up to 10 brain metastases to either hippocampal avoidance whole brain versus SRS which is a highly relevant question in light of the encephalon results, which only compared SRS to standard whole brain radiation. Awesome. It's great to hear about all the ways that these trials are already beginning to affect practice. So what are some of the additional research directions, either for these trials or others, that you're looking forward to seeing in the in the next you know months or years? This is really a, a very exciting time in small cell lung cancer, which has seen relatively few major and even incremental therapeutic advances over the past several decades. I look forward to the publication of these astro presentations so we can learn more details about who these patients were and exactly who may benefit most from these uh, interventions. Um, but I'm also looking forward to seeing the results of other completed trials uh, recently like Adriatic and LU005, looking at the value of immunotherapy in limited stage disease in addition to chemo radiation. Looking forward to seeing if immunotherapy and dose escalation at the same time uh, of the radiation may be helpful as well for these patients. And also ongoing trials like Maverick, Raptor, and CC009 that are tackling optimal multidisciplinary treatments in both limited stage and extensive stage small cell lung cancer. The more that we can work together among medical oncology, radiation oncology, and surgery in terms of figuring out the best combinations of these treatments for our small cell lung cancer patients, the better off we'll be. Fantastic. Well, it's so great to hear about all of these new advances in SCLC. So thank you so much for coming on today to explain all of them. All right. Thank you for your time. Take care now. Thank you for listening to this exclusive interview with Dr. Henry Park. Now, stay tuned to hear Dr. Park's full CME, NCPD, CPE activity, optimizing treatment selection, sequencing, and tolerability in small cell lung cancer, with more expert perspectives from himself and Dr. Ann Chang, Associate Professor of Medicine at Yale School of Medicine. Afterwards, be sure to visit i3health.com to claim free CME, NCPD, or CPE credit for this activity. Welcome to the I3 Health Podcast, where we explore the latest advances in medical research and treatment. I am Katie Cook from I3 Health. While small cell lung cancer is usually treated with systematic therapy with or without radiotherapy, survival rates remain low. Remaining up to date with the latest clinical data in systematic therapy and radiotherapy is crucial. This episode of the I3 Health Podcast will focus on optimizing treatment selection, sequencing, and tolerability in small cell lung cancer. It features perspectives from two noted experts in the field, Dr. Ann Chang, Associate Professor of Medicine and Chief Network Officer 
at Yale School of Medicine, Smilo Cancer Network, and Dr. Henry Park, Associate Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and Chief of Thoracic Radiotherapy at Yale School of Medicine, Smilo Cancer Network. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from G1 Therapeutics. Free CME and NCPD credit are available for this podcast. To claim credit and obtain further information, including faculty disclosures, visit i3health.com slash ODA hyphen SCLC hyphen treatment. Hi, welcome today. Um, we're excited to be here. My name is Ann Chang. I'm an associate professor of medical oncology at Yale Cancer Center. Hi there, I'm Henry Park. I'm a radiation oncologist and associate professor. Um, I am, uh, I'm also at Yale School of Medicine. Great. And we're going to be talking about how to optimize treatment selection, sequencing, and tolerability in small cell lung cancer. Here are disclosures. These are the learning objectives um, to assess patient tumor and treatment related factors, uh, to personalize management plans in small cell. We're going to go over recent clinical trial data on safety and efficacy of novel therapies and look at strategies to enhance your patient's treatments with small cell. So we're going to start with this question. What is our current understanding of the tumor microenvironment and its significance for prognostications, treatment strategies? This is a really super exciting uh, time in small cell where we are actually starting to think of small cell as being um, not just a a homogeneous disease that you treat just with one platinum doublet anymore, but actually as subtypes with respect to molecular profiling, where you could start to think about targeting therapeutic vulnerabilities for small cell patients with subtype A versus subtype B, C, and D. And this has been extremely successful for non-small cell lung cancer uh, with EGFR and other driver mutations uh, tailoring therapy. So we're excited. This is uh, what we're going to talk a little bit about today, the changes in our understanding of biology. This is a great paper from Charlie Rudin that summarizes a lot of work uh, that, that starts to break down small cell as different subtypes, uh, in this case, characterized by the overexpression of certain transcriptional activators. So a subtype A having upregulation of acute skew like uh, one protein, subtype N having overexpression of neuro D1 transcriptional activator, subtype P, uh, POU2F3. Um, and right now, what was it really exciting as an extension of this work, just descriptive work is is sort of looking at the Empower 133 trial that has platinum doublet plus a TESO, which I'll go over later in this program. But I think that the idea here is that if you break down these patients in terms of which subtype they belong to, um, the I subtype actually did better survival-wise with the addition of a TESO, uh, as opposed to in the placebo arm, you didn't see this benefit. So again, this idea that we may be able to develop better markers to understand prognostically which patients are going to respond to immunotherapy versus another therapy. That's really, I think, a big advance forward for small cell lung cancer. The next slide just shows you that we need this information because PDL1, which is our main marker, one of our main markers for um, treatment decisions in non-small cell does not 
perform the same way in small cell. And, and this is just a, uh, an example of in the literature of a tissue microarray of 94 tumors that showed 0% PDL1 expression. And so we've looked at PDL1 expression in a couple of different ways. If you look at this Keynote 028 trial that had uh, small cell patients treated with um, Pembro, the investigators actually changed, they didn't use TPS score, the tumor expression or tumor proportion score, but changed it to using a combined CPS score um, that, that adds the PDL1 positive cells, including tumor cells, lymphocytes, and macrophages to the total number of cells. And, and using this um, slightly different um, CPS scoring, they were able to see that 40% of the patients were PDL1 positive, and this predicted for higher response. So maybe utilizing the PDL1 staining and looking at the other cells in the microenvironment. Um, but again, it doesn't perform the same way in small cell as it does in non-small cell. And, and the Checkmate 032 trial, where patients with small cell received NEVO or NEVO-IPI, uh, overall, there were about only 20% positive patients and in the PDL1 negative patients, you still saw responses. So again, PDL1 um, as a marker is not uh, the same as in, in non-small cell, and we need better biomarkers for small cell. So, you know, some of this is, is work looking at the tumor microenvironment. This just shows you a paper that looks at FOXP3 cells. These are T regulatory cells. Uh, and, and perhaps we have to really look at other aspects of the tumor microenvironment. Here, uh, Dr. Schalper, who does really great work in immunofluorescence, and, and we can start to look in the, the tumor microenvironment, not only at the number of cells that are positive, but also cell density and cell percentage. Uh, and, and this may help us to understand better how, how PDL1 works in small cell. And this is just a quick uh, schema of, a, of an investigator-initiated trial that Dr. Schalper and I have initiated. And this is just to show you that we actually looked at patients getting ipinevo that had relapsed disease. We did a biopsy pretreatment and then on treatment at week four, and we're looking at the microenvironment to see what predicts response. Uh, I think the most important piece of this so far is that we've been able to be very successful with about two-thirds of our patients getting these paired biopsies. And I think that allows us to study the microenvironment and ultimately learn more about this disease. So now I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Dr. Park, to talk about the, the really important role of radiation in um, small cell lung cancer. Thank you very much, Dr. Chang. We're um, interested in seeing what the, um, you know, what, what the uses of radiation are in the, in, in the limited stage and extensive stage um, space. So for limited stage disease, uh, we, we, uh, the, the overall standard of care is concurrent chemotherapy with radiotherapy. Uh, so the chemotherapy being platinum doublet and radiation therapy either being 45 gray and 1.5 gray BID fractions or somewhere between 60 and 70 gray, you know, having, having two gray fractions once a day. Um, there are also some clinical trials ongoing as well. Um, these actually, these two have just completed right now. Uh, one is looking at immunotherapy in the, in the concurrent setting, and one is also looking at immunotherapy in the consolidative setting after the chemo and radiation is complete. 
Uh, so once chemo irradiation is complete, then uh, we also have the question of prophylactic cranial irradiation to, to 25 gray in 10 fractions. Uh, once you get restaging scans that show at least a partial response. Uh, for limited stage disease, it's, it, it, this is still considered the standard of care. However, there uh, there is a clinical trial that's ongoing right now, the uh, SWOG uh, S1827 study, or that's also known as Maverick, uh, that's looking at MRI surveillance with or without PCI in this population. Also being studied is, is, is if you do PCI, if you can actually spare the hippocampus as well uh, versus doing conventional PCI. But this actually requires an IMRT technique or intensity modulated radiation to really try to minimize the dose to the hippocampus and spare neurocognitive side effects as much as possible. Uh, this trial has completed the, uh, the NRG uh, CC003 uh, trial has been completed and uh, it's, we're awaiting results for that. Uh, for uh, the rare early stage patient, so, so so if there's a patient with a T1 or T2 small cell lung cancer, just had a negative mediastinoscopy. Um, the question is whether to uh, consider surgery upfront, and uh, there is there is some evidence to suggest that this may be a reasonable option as well. Uh, we could do surgery, or for medically in inoperable patients, using SBRT and following this up with chemotherapy afterwards. Um, this choice of local therapy, you know, that, that often depends on the patient's ability to. To undergo surgery, um, and also the uh, likelihood of rapid recovery enough to start chemotherapy soon afterwards, um, as well as the availability of, of the, the surgical radiation treatment that can be done in a quick fashion um, so that they can get on the systemic therapy. For extensive stage small cell lung cancer, uh, the management typically now is concurrent chemotherapy with immunotherapy, uh, even for those with small asymptomatic brain metastases. Uh, the plan is often accompanied by, by by having immunotherapy with tezolizumab or or also devalumab. So there, there are two trials that Dr. Chang will, will review a little bit more um, in, in the following slides. Uh, for, uh, for, for prophylactic cranial radiation, um, to the same dose, uh, this is still an option, although this is not necessarily as standard of an option anymore. Uh, there have been two trials now that have uh, looked at this question that conflict, and I'll talk about that in, in one of the next slides. Uh, the SWOG study is open uh, for this population as well, as it was the hippocampal avoidance PCI trial. Um, and then um, for the consolidated thoracic radiation question, uh, whether or not you do radiation afterwards, if you get a complete, uh, if you get a complete response, or at least a thoracic partial response uh, using radiation therapy to uh, 30 to 45 gray in 10 to 15 daily fractions is also something that, that is being investigated further, uh, but has been standard previously. Um, and then whole brain radiation, if you develop brain metastases that are symptomatic or progressive, um, can be considered, um, although uh, there is more investigation looking at stereotactic radiosurgery as well for a limited number of brain metastases. So the next question is, uh, you know, to talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, the, the fact that there are conflicting dosing and scheduling strategies for radiation, and how do we determine the most appropriate regimen for our patients? So for limited stage disease, the INT0099 Teresi trial uh, did look at 45 gray and 1.5 gray BIB fractions, which became standard of care when compared to 45 gray and 25 daily fractions. However, the daily regimen was considered to be subtherapeutic, uh, and therefore there have been uh, there have been two clinical trials since then that have looked at comparing this uh, this this BID regimen to a higher dose daily regimen, the one that we use. 
for adults, small cell lung cancer very frequently. So 66 gray or 70 gray for each of these two trials, the CONVERT and the CALGB study. Uh, both of them found that the daily fractionation was not superior to the BID outcomes, uh, but at the same time, uh, they appeared fairly close in terms of their survival curves. Uh, so in the real world, how do we handle this? Uh, I typically offer both the BID option and the daily option, and most uh, radiation oncologists I know uh, do the same. Uh, some may have slight preferences of one over the other, um, but uh, I tend to leave it more up to the patient and also um, to determine uh, which patients may, uh, may, may, may actually benefit from one or the other. Uh, we often think about the patient's ability to travel twice a day for radiation. It's not something where you can just do radiation back to back. You have to wait six hours in between each of the doses. So they have to come once in the morning and again, once in the afternoon and really commit to doing a three-week course, uh, which for some patients is very convenient to get everything done in only three weeks. Weeks, uh, but each day really cannot be missed, and and you really have to do, have to do twice a day each day. So even if a patient says they can do BID, um, you really have to be able to be sure that they you know have the resources uh, that that will that would allow them to do that consistently. Uh, if not, the, the other concern is whether or not it takes um, the patients have to be away for a long time, or if they rather get the the treatment done very quickly, or if they're okay with it being prolonged over six to six and a half weeks. Um, there's also, uh, there was not much of a difference in acute toxicity overall um, for between the high-dose daily fractionation and the BID fractionation. Uh, however, um, the, the, uh, the, the overall acute esophagitis uh, may be slightly higher for those who are getting BIDs. So for those who you think can tolerate that better, uh, that may be a good option as well. Uh, but the, you know, so, so the, the practice patterns, it's very throughout centers in terms of how often they use the BID or the daily fractionation. A lot of it depends on the patient population and also how close they live to the facility um, and, and how easy it is to get there. Um, so there's there's various factors that may account for that. For extensive stage small cell lung cancer, if uh, we know the Yeramix study here, uh, you use consolidated radiation in, in with actually a very high dose BID fractionation. Um, this has been really replaced by a much lower dose from the CREST study here, from the, the Slotman study in 2015 um, that used a much lower dose here of 30 gray and 10 fractions, only requiring two weeks two weeks of treatment. Um, the Empower 133 and Caspian studies, as Dr. Chang will, will allude to later, did not allow for consolidated radiation with maintenance immunotherapy. Looking at retrospective data, this does appear safe to do, uh, but at the same time, uh, there's not we don't have any randomized evidence yet suggesting that this is necessarily the, the approach that we have to take right now for all patients. Um, so in the real world, uh, if you're not on trial, we do consider consolidated thoracic radiation for certain patients, um, depending on the, on the disease burden and also patient performance status and preference. Uh, so the patients that we tend to do this most on are those who have limited disease overall, um, especially part that makes them extensive stage. So the metastases, if it's overall not uh, too burdensome of, of the disease and, and they're able to also uh, respond well to the initial chemo and immunotherapy, uh, then we tend to uh, to consider consolidated thoracic radiation. Depends on our field size and our, the patient's tolerance, how they how well they've gone through the chemo and immunotherapy in terms of their side effects as well. Um, so this um, really is this is all taken into account. Uh, we typically don't escalate up to forty five gray in, in fifteen fractions unless we have a very specific selected patient um, who wants to be very aggressive and where we feel like the field is small and their extra thoracic disease is is quite minimal. Thank you.
Uh, but we do have a trial open as well called the Raptor Study or L NRG LU007 um, that is investigating this Empower 133 regimen, uh, plus minus cons the consolidative radiation therapy, uh, not just to the thorax necessarily, but even up to five metastatic sites overall. And then finally, uh, for me, um, uh, um, when do you consider prophylactic cranial radiation for your patients? So in the limited stage setting, um, the open meta-analysis here showed an overall survival benefit to prophylactic cranial radiation. Uh, we know that from, from uh, that 25 gray and 10 fractions is superior to a higher dose, which is why we use that dosing. Uh, however, these uh, all these clinical trials were done in the pre-MRI era. Uh, when MRIs are not routinely done for screening purposes or for surveillance purposes. So there may be uh, treatment for micrometastatic disease that was not caught on CT scans, uh, but on, on current uh, MRI scans may be caught and therefore given, perhaps we were actually giving treatment to patients who we thought we were prophylaxing. So um, in the real world now, what do we do? Uh, in general, for limited stage, we tend to lean towards PCI still, given that this this has been a standard and has not has not yet really been overturned as a standard for 25 gray and 10 fractions. Um, the choice of PCI is based on, on uh, many factors, though. And a lot of patients uh, you, you know, really don't necessarily want to do this uh, for good reason because of the potential cognitive and functional deficits that they may have. That's because of the radiation. Um, however, um, you know, at the same time, we do know that the only, only level one data we have so far does show a survival benefit. Um, but you have to also account for patient age and their the baseline status to see if, if this would really impact the quality of life so much that would be unacceptable to them and potentially not worth the potential improvement survival um, and their the preferences for avoiding potential toxicities versus avoiding brain metastases. Um, I think a lot of these patients, I do offer hippocampal avoidance based on the PREMER study uh, from that was published in JCO 2021. Uh, there have been some conflicting studies out of, from this in, in Europe, and we're awaiting our main U.S. study, uh, which has completed accrual, HN, uh, the, the NRG CC003 study, uh, looking at whether or not prophylactic cranial radiation um, with hippocampal avoidance will be helpful for neurocognitive outcomes without a detriment to survival. And then uh, the ongoing trial we have currently is the Maverick study as well for, for this population. Um, it's, this will hopefully answer the question in the more modern age of MRI. For extensive stage small cell lung cancer, um, there's conflicting data. The EURTC study uh, by Slotman did show an overall survival benefit to PCI in the pre-MRI era. Uh, the Japanese study recently from Takahashi did um, not show a survival benefit in, um, to PCI in the MRI era. So the more modern study uh, not uh, showing a benefit has led us off trial to generally lean away from PCI, although we do respect patient preference uh, regarding minimizing intracranial recurrence, which we do know that PCI certainly would do that. Um, we also know that patients who can't get MRIs also or do not want to get MRIs, um, uh, either for surveillance or upfront, uh, would also be uh, patients that we, sh we should be doing uh, PCI on even the extensive stage setting. In a setting of where they can get MRIs, then ideally we would enroll in the Maverick study. Uh, if patients do develop brain metastases, uh, there is a choice of stereotactic radiosurgery uh, for patients with limited disease. We typically limit this to those with one or two lesions that are small and have overall demonstrated a, a good natural history. Um, but this may be based on intracranial and extracranial diseases burden, uh, preferences for delaying potential toxicities of whole brain radiation versus avoiding brain metastases. Uh, because uh, what we don't want to do is, if possible, is to give stereotactic radiosurgery and then the next scan, they develop many more mets that we would have to give whole brain radiation afterwards anyway. Um, so this is um, something that we consider strongly, but um, you know, there's ongoing studies on this as well. Great. Thanks, Henry. I think for medical oncologists, it's really great to hear that directly from the radiation oncologists and how it, that informs our, our practice. Uh, now we're going to turn to therapies with Atizo and Dervalumab. 
uh, in the first line for treatment of extensive stage um, and try to address some of the questions of how do you select these patients for these therapy and, and what their efficacy and safety data are. So I'm going to start with a case study. This is a, a patient of mine, 75-year-old African-American female, 45-pack year tobacco history, presented with 20-pound weight loss, a worsening shortness of breath on exertion and cough, some prior medical history, coronary artery disease, vascular disease, diabetes, hypothyroid, and her physical exam with uh, shoddy neck lymphadenopathy, uh, right axillary lymphadenopathy, and the PET scan confirms, and you can see that image on the right, 6.2, uh, right lower lobe mass, it's inseparable from the pleura, there's additional nodules in the right lower lobe, and there's lots of bulky lymphadenopathy in the hilar mediastinal, uh, and then that right axillary um, region. The brain MRI is negative, uh, and the biopsy of the lymph node shows small cell carcinoma positive for synaptophysin, and this is an actively proliferating tumor with KI67 of 90%. Uh, how would you treat this patient? So I've got a couple of options here. What regimen do you use? Uh, carboitoposide, carboitoposide atezo, carboitoderva, cisetoderva, and actually the, the answer is pretty much all of these actually. The first one is not, it is uh, I included there because many of these patients, as you know, are very sick and they'll end up in the hospital and they do benefit from inpatient treatment. Uh, and then typically I'll add on the immunotherapy on cycle two, for example, as an outpatient. Um, there, is a, there is a way that you can get uh, reimbursement for giving um, IO inpatient, uh, but, but we have not been able to, to do that yet. So now I'm, I'm gonna go into the data for the first-line therapy, the addition of, of immunotherapy to our platinum doublet. Um, and this is exciting because this was the first uh, two FDA approvals in a long time for small cell. The first one is the Empower 133 trial, which I talked about before. And this was a TZO plus carbutoposide versus placebo plus the platinum doublet followed by maintenance at TZO or placebo. And this was to um, patients treated until progression um, with the overall endpoints of OS and um, PFS. Um, and this is for this is first line for patients with PSO zero to one and treated uh, asymptomatic brain meds were eligible. So here's the Kaplan-Meier curve. Um, this is updated at two years. You can see the 18-month survival, 34 versus 21 uh, in the TZO arm, and the median overall survival, 12.3 uh, versus 10 months. And this was approved by the FDA on the basis of this trial. Here you can just see that if you look at TMB, which we thought might be a, a, a biomarker, doesn't matter depending on which cut point you use, 10 or, or 16, um, you still that just still doesn't really work as a as a good marker for a TZO benefit. Um, the Caspian trial uh, was a similar trial where patients were randomized to Derva plus platinum doublet. Um, followed by maintenance derva, derva tremi, uh, plus the platinum doublet versus, uh, followed by maintenance derva tremi is a, tremolimumab is a anti-CTLA-4 
uh, antibody. And then this is the control arm of, of platinum doublet. Now, I should note that you could use either cis or carboplatin in this trial. Um, the Empower 133 was just carbo. Uh, there was optional PCI noted, the primary endpoints of OS. And, and in this trial, you could have asymptomatic untreated brain mets um, that were permitted. Um, for this trial, the, the Derva Tremi arm did not show a benefit. So I'm not going to go in, I'm not going to show you those curves, but I'm really going to concentrate on the Derva plus EP arm. Here is the three-year overall update here. And you can see that the Kaplan-Meyer's curve shows at three years, 17.6 uh, benefit versus um, uh, 6% benefit. So almost threefold improvement in overall survival at that endpoint. Very similar median overall survival to the Empower 133, that's 12.9 uh, versus 10.5. So on the basis of this trial, the FDA granted approval to Duralumab plus EP for first-line treatment. This is a three-year update. Here's a, a table I put together that just puts this side by side. Uh, you can see, again, the median overall survival is very similar. The hazard ratio is very similar. Um, the two-year overall survival, almost identical. Uh, we do have that three-year overall survival for the Caspian. The Empower 133 treated brain mets only. At Caspian allowed asymptomatic brain mets and allowed cisplatin as well. Uh, I think the, these are very two very consistent trials. Uh, I've used both of these drugs. They're tolerated very well. And I'm going to show that to you in the um, subsequent slides. So I'm not now going to turn to how to follow patients and assess treatment response. Uh, now this is my patient. She has an excellent response to four cycles of carbo, etoposide, and atezo. And she continued on maintenance monthly atezo. Uh, and then up to cycle nine of maintenance atezo, so doing really well. Uh, the restaging scans every three cycles or three months are showing stable disease. And she um, tolerated this drug very well, except for um, IO-induced lichenoid rash, but that was controlled very easily with steroid topical cream. So uh, again, here you can see that that um, she has a, probably a little scar tissue here, but certainly that that a nice shrinkage of that initial right lower lobe mass. Um, and the question is, how do you long, how long do you continue the maintenance immunotherapy? In the trial, they in, in power 133, as I mentioned before, it was it was continued until progression of disease or or side effects um, that that required um, stopping drug. Uh, here you can see the treatment related adverse events. Uh, between the, the TEZO or the placebo arm, pretty much identical. Um, the, the duration of the maintenance of TEZO was usually was 4.7 months in the TEZO arm. The placebo continued for about 4.1 months. Uh, and the average total cumulative uh, TEZO dose was seven doses or, or 8,400 8, milligrams. So really pretty well and, um, tolerated. Here, the immune-related adverse events, um, and these are, are ones that we're familiar with as oncologists now, uh, and grades three, four, really pretty minimal, uh, 0.5 to 2% uh, in grades three, four in the atezo arm, and um, 
uh, it always cracks me up to see the, the immune-related events in the placebo arm, but also very low. Here are the serious adverse events um, at the three-year update. Um, and again, very similar between both arms. So very well tolerated. Uh, this is for Devalumab now, sorry, the Caspian trial. Uh, and again, pretty much what we expect here, uh, pneumonitis, hepatitis, diarrhea, colitis, all really in the one to 2% range. So both of these regimens really well tolerated. Which immune-mediated adverse events co concern you the most and how do you monitor and manage these? Well, we're getting very good at managing these. So um, my patient developed acute shortness of breath and dry cough for several days. She was evaluated in the ER. She had some hypoxia, but she was stable hemodynamically. And the CTA here showed no PE, but bilateral ground glass opacities. Um, so how do you manage this immune toxicity and do you consider rechallenge with IO? That's a common question that I have. Um, so this, there's a lot of groups that have developed um, algorithms for management of uh, immune-related adverse events. In general, if they're grade one and, and asymptomatic, uh, you can continue the immunotherapy with close monitoring. Uh, if they're grade two, mild to moderate symptoms, I usually hold the treatment and provide supportive care. And depending on the, the symptoms and, and the, the patient, uh, I may initiate um, oral steroids here. Every time you initiate the steroids, it's important to remember that you're going to taper those steroids over a long period of time. Usually they've bought themselves a four to six week um, a steroid ta taper to reduce the recurrence of symptoms. And, and sometimes I'll go 10, uh, decrease 10 milligrams of prednisone per week. Uh, but if their symptoms get worse, I might switch that to five uh, coming down. Um, and then you can consider reinitiation of immunotherapy when grade one or less, or you can just watch them. And many of my patients, I just switch to monitoring. If they're grade three to four, then the advisance is, is to discontinue immunotherapy and there, there are lots of organ-specific algorithms out there uh, and initiate high-dose steroids promptly, um, either uh, prednisone or, or IV, depending if they're outpatient or inpatient and how sick they are. Again, they bought themselves a long steroid taper um, and can, can consider reinitiation with caution. Uh, typically for grade three, four, I don't. And I just watch them because many of my patients who've developed these uh, immune-related adverse events actually do quite well um, with, with just surveillance monitoring. Grade four, I would warrant permanent discontinuation. Uh, and if it's important to, to realize if, if they have no improvement or progression in the first two to three days, then you can add an additional immunosuppressant, uh, for example, infliximab. Um, and actually there are a number of different, there's a lot of research going on in this area uh, that, that uh, are additional immunosuppressive drugs that, that can be utilized. Um, and this is just to show you, if there's an article uh, in the literature that did show that if you had an immune adverse event of any grade, it actually improved your um, uh, progression-free survival, overall survival in this particular paper. So 
uh, that that I do tell my patients if they're anxious about not being on on therapy. Um, and this is the spectrum of immune-related adverse events, and it basically any organ in your body uh, can can be subject to um, these toxicities. And I've I've had actually patients develop <laughs> almost every single one of, or certainly adverse events in every one of these organs. They all uh, can be treated with the steroids, as I mentioned before. Um, this just is to show, this is a paper that shows you that you can have onset of, of um, immune-related adverse events really anywhere in the course. It can be, uh, the median onset is five to 12 weeks after initiation, but it could be within days of the first dose, or it could be after months of treatment, and it can also be after discontinuation of therapy. So really important to have that at top of mind whenever your patient presents uh, with side effects or with symptoms. Um, this is, uh, I think, the, the NCCN guidelines for immune therapy rechallenge. Here, um, they're really saying, do not rechallenge if you have uh, grade three, four in skin, um, that grade four in, in the GI colitis and so forth. And uh, these guidelines are, are excellent. Uh, I thought this was interesting. This was in a paper that I ran across that showed the rate of recurrence according to the initial immune response adverse event. Uh, and this showed that about 30% in this particular study um, of patients had recurrence of the initial um, event upon rechallenge. And, and that was higher, that re, higher rechallenge recurrence for colitis, uh, hepatitis, and pneumonitis. I typically do not, for hepatitis, I do not rechallenge. Uh, and have done so for, for colitis and pneumonitis successfully. Moving to second-line treatment, what, does, what role does the novel alkylating agent Lurbi-Nectidin play, or Lurbi as I call it, and what are the data supporting its use? Um, so here's the NCCN guidelines for extensive stage uh, for this, and we talked about the primary therapy. Subsequent if the, the, here's the preferred regimens. So if you, if you um, have a disease-free interval of, I think this has been actually uh, just re, revised to six months that you can, you should really uh, re-challenge with the original re regimen, that platinum-based doublet. Otherwise, if it's less than that, then we really look at lurbanectidin, um, topotecan. Those are both FDA approved right now. Um, and, and I really look at clinical trial to try to move the envelope for these patients. So lurbanectidin is a, is a drug that binds in the guanine residue of the minor groove of DNA, and it inhibits uh, transcription and induces double uh, DNA double-strand breaks, leading to apoptosis. Here's the data for it, and this led to accelerated FDA approval. Uh, this is a relatively small trial, 100 patients, and patients had relapsed after only one prior regimen. This did not include any CNS mets. So we don't know about lurbanectidin really in the brain. And the dose here was 3.2 milligrams per meter squared every three weeks IV. Um, and in all patients, all comers, response was 35% overall response rate. And um, if you were platinum resistance, and here they use a cutoff of, of 30 days when you recur, uh, that dropped 22, but still was pretty effective. And if you were sensitive, that actually in increased to 45%. And then these patients who do well uh, are doing well. The safety profile, mostly um, 
grade one, two events, some fatigue, some GI, uh, some di diarrhea. And then the grade three events included myelosuppression here in general, pretty well tolerated. Uh, the FDA approved this in June of 2020 on the basis of the data I just showed you. Uh, it's interesting to note that both Pembro and Nevo, uh, which were previously approved um, with accelerated approval by the FDA, uh, were withdrawn subsequently uh, by, the, by the sponsors because of phase three data that came after that. Okay, the other uh, FDA approval within the past few years has to do with supportive care, uh, the CDK4-6 inhibitor trilocyclic which was approved for chemo-induced myelosuppression. So I'm gonna spend some time talking about the mechanism of action for this drug. CDKs are multifunctional enzymes that are activated by cyclins and they regulate cell cycle progression. And chemotherapy drugs target cells at different parts of the cycle. So that's basically what happens with trilocyclin. It's really interesting. It, it, it protects hematopoietic um, progenitor cells by pausing the cell cycle in the G1 phase. So they're protecting those cell cells from damage by chemotherapy. And this is the, the article, which is a pooled analysis of three randomized phase trials. I'm gonna talk about the three pooled studies here. It was a total of 123 patients uh, treated with trilocyclob and 119 uh, with placebo. And between the two groups, the median overall survival uh, was pretty much the same, the PFS the same, they're comparable. Uh, but trilocyclic resulted in decreased myelosuppression and the need for supportive care interventions in this patient population. So fewer patients um, had grade three, four hematologic events, uh, that's 44% versus 77%. And of the patients who continued treatment after cycle one, 9% uh, of those patients uh, had greater than or equal to one chemotherapy dose reduction compared to 30% with placebo. I think the key takeaways from our presentation today uh, are that they're really exciting biological, uh, really exciting advances in small cell biology, which will hopefully yield biomarkers to direct treatment. This is not yet prime time, but I think that we're starting to de design drug trials to target uh, those therapeutic vulnerabilities in different subtypes of small cell. Um, I think it's really important to consider um, talking to your IR or interventional pulmonologists about the biopsies for small cell and just to make sure that they're, you're getting really good needle biopsies, not FNA as, as previously has been done because tissue samples are gonna be really key for molecular analysis in the future. A platinum atoposide with an immune checkpoint inhibitor is the recommended first-line treatment for excess extensive stage small cell, and you can use either a TISO or Dervalumab. Uh, and I showed you the updated analysis of, of both of the Caspian and Empower 133 trials that show continued response benefit to patients. Um, Lurbanectidin is now approved by the FDA for relapse small cell disease, and trilocyclib is approved by the FDA for chemo-induced myelosuppression. So a lot of advances in the last uh, five years compared to the, the previous 30 years. Um, and now I'm gonna turn it over to Henry to talk about the um, additional takeaways. So thank you, Dr. Chang. So the, uh, the, the main takeaways for me are that radiotherapy has a crucial role in small cell lung cancer in many contexts, whether it's definitive, consolidative, prophylactic, or palliative. 
For limited stage small cell lung cancer, we believe that concurrent chemotherapy and radiation followed by prophylactic cranial irradiation is still standard of care. But we're also investigating whether or not immunotherapy or the, mod the, the overall omission or modification of PCI um, are, are something we should be doing in the future. For extensive stage disease, concurrent chemotherapy and immunotherapy is standard of care, but PCI and consolidative extra, extracranial radiation are still under investigation in this context, given the, the advent of, of using immunotherapy these days in this context. Uh, for palliation, uh, stereotactic radiosurgery or whole brain radiation can be used for brain metastases. Um, and also, we also use low-dose radiation therapy as well for symptomatic thoracic or extrathoracic disease. So thank you very much for your attention today. And thank you very much as well. I think that uh, one last key takeaway is that it's really important to have a very good multidisciplinary team. As Dr. Park and I work closely together, uh, talk to each other every day and also involve our surgeons for those early stage patients we didn't talk about specifically today. Thank you so much for your time and attention. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the i3Health podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. To claim CME or NCPD credit for this activity, visit i3health.com slash ODA hyphen SCLC hyphen treatment. While you're there, you can check out our other free oncology CME and NCPD offerings at i3health.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media for free CME and NCPD, as well as news, exclusive interviews, and more. In addition to our podcast, check out Oncology Data Advisor, where we feature expert perspectives and news stories on the latest in cancer research and treatment, all found at oncdata.com.